Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the CEOs, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Lewis speaks with KCSA Vice President Gretchen Gailey to recap KCSA's inaugural Congressional Cannabis Day Forum. Our first show covers our capital markets and banking panel, featuring Evan Edeman, co-founder and CEO of MGO Ello, Cody Sanchez, Managing Director of Cresco Capital Partners, Edward Fields, Chair and CEO of Dionamed, Nick Kabasevich, CEO and founder of Kushco, and moderator Tim Seymour from CNBC. Don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our Congressional Cannabis Day Forum's Capital Markets and Banking Panel. Hey, Gretchen. Hi, Lewis. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while. Thank you for having me. Well, actually, I need to thank you because um, we are going to be starting a string of a few podcasts that are the panels that we held at the first annual KCSA Washington, D.C. Cannabis Forum that we held, and, and you were integral in putting together. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about what we did and, and what was co- so cool and unique about it? Well, what we wanted to do was to bring uh, industry leaders together with lawmakers um, at the Capitol, and the best way to do that is to take it inside the building um, to get them actually in the seats and talking to each other. And so we managed to hold the first ever cannabis event in the actual we Capitol didn't just building. We managed to do it. You made well, this happen. You pulled this off, which you're was very really kind. cool. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, it was a great event. Um, we had a number of different topics that we covered, looking at uh, financial services, veterans issues, opioids, CBD, um, and there was one more. It's uh, totally escaping me. Social justice? Social justice, yes. And we also were joined by a bunch of different uh, elected officials, everybody from a friend of the podcast, Congressman Earl Blumenauer. Uh, David Joyce of Ohio. Uh, Ruben Gallego was also able to attend. From Arizona. That Nick Opich, our producer, was literally like bouncing off the walls to meet and get a picture with. He was was broing out. He was like, had a boy crush. It was kind of cute. It was. (laughs) And they're about the same height, so it was really funny. (laughs) Uh, Yes, Ruben was there. He was great. He was there to support our veterans. uh, our veterans panel. Um, and then later on in the evening, we got to have premiere of Weed the People, fe- also fellow former podcasters, Ricky Lake and Abby Epstein. Who are just truly kind souls. I mean, really nice people who did something in making that film um, that hopefully will change the awareness of people who don't understand the real medicine behind cannabis. I mean, it was it was touching, and we flew in um, on um, a bunch of the families who were featured in the film, and we got a chance, um, whether it was you or me or, or Todd Fromer, who was recent, you know, who was my business partner and, and helps run the IR group, who was there, got to meet them, and Jeffrey Goldberger. Um, we all got to, to, to spend time with them. And it's eye-opening to see, you know, kids who most probably would be dead were it not for the plant to be there and vibrant and, and engaged. And it was very interesting to me to be able to also have um, Senate former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle open up the evening there. Um, he is a recent convert into the cannabis industry. And he has evolved. He has. Um, and his his generation is definitely taking a different look at cannabis now. And the movie definitely helped open his eyes a bit more to the benefits of medical cannabis. So it was great to be able to connect him with a number of the families and the doctors and the caregivers in the film uh, for him to speak with them more. So it was a nice event. The panel that that's going to follow our chat mm-hmm. um, is on the capital markets and banking. And it was moderated by Tim Seymour, who has, who's not only a friend of the podcast, but has really become a, a good friend of mine personally and of KCSA's uh, more broadly. Tim is um, the chief investment officer of Seymour Asset Management, but but he's more well known for his role on Fast Money on CNBC. And he was joined by Evan Eneman, 
also who's been on the podcast, the co-founder and CEO of the MGOLO Alliance, um, Cody Sanchez, managing director of Cresco Capital Partners. Cresco is a client of KCSA's, and Cody is um, one of the few women in private equity in cannabis, and has really, you know, very quickly established herself as one of the smartest thinkers in the space. They were joined by uh, Ed Fields, uh, chairman and CEO of Dionamed, and. Uh, a favorite of ours always, Nick Kovacevic, CEO of uh, Kushko. Um, and it was just a great panel. Folks got to, uh, really a hot topic is the Safe Banking Act that's trying to make its way through Congress right now. Um, so that'll be touched on. But uh, m- money has always been a major issue for this industry, especially 280E. Yep. Um, and these folks really get into it and have a good, lively discussion. So um, to steal a line from Shay, don't sit back, lean forward. Now onto the uh, the panel conversation on capital markets and banking at KCSA's Cannabis DC Day. I want to introduce our panel here, which is the capital markets uh, and investment panel. Um, and from the left on down, um, uh, Nick Kovacevic from Kushko Holdings. Nick, quick quick introduction on you before we go on to the next panelist. Yeah, thanks, Nick. So my name is Nick Kovacevic. I'm the CEO of Kushko Holdings. Our company works uh, labeling. Um, uh, supplies, uh, gloves, things like that, that these folks need on a regular basis to operate their business. And uh, we're one of many ancillary providers to the space. We're one of the biggest and, and that's solely focused on cannabis. Um, but the companies that have taken the most revenue from this industry are companies like PG&E that provide the power to these uh, warehouses that grow. Um, companies that do you know, heating and HVAC, uh, all lawyers, uh, consultants, there's so many ancillary businesses. So most people look at the astounding figures uh, in terms of jobs uh, that are created and tax revenue that's produced. Those are all for plant touching, operating cannabis businesses. Nobody really talks about the other ancillary businesses, businesses like ours, which is growing at 250% annually. Uh, we, we hired over 120 people last year. We employ uh, folks throughout eight states and three countries. So there's a lot happening in this industry uh, outside and adjacent to touching the plant, and I want to be a spokesperson for that and represent that here today. Thanks, Nick. Um, next, Edward Fields from Dianimed. And again, what's what's great about the, the, the cast we've gathered today is, especially on, on truly the corporate side, um, another company who's involved in some of the traditional kind of vertically integrated business you know about and have heard about in the industry, but also um, kind of like Nick's company, a a company that's really providing the ancillary services, but in a world where we're spending so much time talking about technology, um, someone with a deep technology background and Dianimed performing those services for the industry. Hi, I'm Ed Fields, the the, the chairman and CEO of Dianimed, ticker symbol DIME. D-Y-M-E. We're a cannabis brands company. We get our products to consumers from or- throughout Oregon and California with both distribution and direct-to-consumer capabilities. At a $19 million Q1 that we announced, this is a real business operating at scale with hundreds of employees, uh, multiple locations, physical assets, um, and lots and lots of cannabis moving through the system. Super excited to be here visiting with you all today in this historic building for what is, I suspect, a historic occasion, a real discussion about why the cannabis industry matters, why it matters so much now, the engine of growth that it represents for our economy, and the role that the legislature has to play in in making it work better. Thanks, Ed. Um, Evan Enneman from Elo. Am I pronouncing that right? Um, who has a very unique perspective as well, which is really a company that is, is performing both accounting and you know, essentially consulting functions for companies to help them navigate what is this regulatory, uh, we'll call it a quagmire. Um, so Evan, please introduce yourself. Sure, Evan Enneman, I'm the CEO of the MGOLO Alliance. Uh, we are a professional services firm providing investment banking, financial advisory, tax, audit, and assurance and other services to the cannabis industry. Uh, I've been providing dedicated services to the space now for the last five years, probably one of the largest practices in the US. Work with both uh, US companies and some of the more recognizable names that have uh, gone public up in Canada, such as Acreage and GTI, 
Um, and, and really, our goal in, in providing services to help organizations, regulators, policymakers navigate uh, this, this industry and, and help to create a platform of trust and transparency. So um, I, I have been in the industry for a while, both on the investor side, the creative services side, and now uh, as well on the professional services side. Uh, so interested to see how this panel progresses. I think, I think, I think we all are. Thanks, Evan. Um, Cody Sanchez from Cresco, uh, which is Cresco Capital, not to be confused with Cresco Labs, um, but a, a firm that's been really at work in this sector from the beginning. So not one of the many hedge funds that's kind of popped up at a time it's been convenient to do so. Um, Cody, please. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Cody Sanchez. I'm a partner at uh, Cresco Capital. Thank you for the lovely introduction, Tim. Sure. Um, so, you know, when we look at this industry, uh, we've been investing in cannabis since 2014 as a fund group, and prior to that have individual investors as my six partners and I. We've deployed a little bit over $100 million into the cannabis space, um, and we've invested in 31 companies through that, representing something above $6 billion in, in their total uh, market cap now, um, and that's accelerating. The next round of capital will be something like $150 million. And so, you know, my belief is that um, you cannot have a company without its lifeblood, which is capital. And so as Tim alluded to, we, we take it pretty serious that we have an opportunity, I think, uniquely in this industry, to do well financially by doing a lot of good. And that doesn't happen that often in the financial markets. And so so our hope is to fund the companies of the future. And we've been in some deals like Acreage and GTI, Harborside, which is Steve D'Angelo's company. I mean, arguably one of the biggest mm -hmm. advocates for this industry. Uh, and we want to find the next round of companies that are going to, to sort of continue, I think, while we're all in this room, which is to, to do well and also do good. Thanks, Cody. So um, I want to start out really big picture before we drill down, because while it's obvious uh, why we're all here, um, I think in terms of addressing both the, the masses, the legislators, um, the consumers, uh, the investors, um, and you know, really the, the capital markets professionals, um, I, I actually want to hear from our panel um, the concept of really, you know, not that the genie's out of the bottle, but in fact, that, you know, cannabis uh, has always been here. So this isn't a question of why is this happening. Um, and I just kind of want to get a sense, Nick, um, uh, to kick us off, um, just the, the, the overall environment that you see based upon the world you've come out of. And anyway, you want to answer that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Tim and I were, were talking before this, and, and one of the points I wanted to, to mention is, you know, a lot of the debate is around, you know, should we, should we make cannabis legal and accessible, or should we keep it illegal and keep it out of the hands of people? Well, the reality is, People are getting their hands on it regardless. Um, cannabis transactions are occurring in every single state, legal or illegal. And the question really is, do we want those transactions to continue to occur in the black market? Do we want to benefit the, the cartels, the illicit drug trades, or do we want to move it into the legal market and do we want to benefit the taxpaying citizens, right? And those transactions are safer. We know that the product is now being tested for harmful pesticides or toxins. Um, you're not gonna get that in the black market. And so really that's the question. I think everybody can agree that transactions occurring in a safe environment where product is tested and taxes are generated is a better alternative to what's happening today in a lot of these markets. Um, so that's just setting the stage. And, and really I think it, it comes down to, to folks understanding that, understanding the economic benefit, understanding that you know that's on the adult use side. There's also a whole medical side to this where people actually need access, and I'm glad we're showing the video yep. later today, um, because that's just a no-brainer. I mean, if somebody can potentially benefit uh, for helping them cope with a, a debilitating disease uh, by accessing this plant, and you want to make it tough or difficult or impossible for them to get access, to me, that, that's criminal. I mean, we should be able to give people access if it could potentially benefit them, what's the downside risk there, right? So that starts there, and then it moves into, like I said, the, the, the legal adult use market and where these transactions are occurring, and they're happening today. Let's not turn a blind eye to that. Yeah. Let's address it and, and move it into the right channel. So speaking of the right channel, Ed, you know, you, you come out of a, a software Silicon Valley background, a guy that's seen the, the rapid fire evolution of technology. So again, genie's out of the bottle. So, you know, talk about technology applications at a time when, when you know, technology is quickly transforming CPG by itself in every subsector and how you guys see that. 
Yeah, look, I mean, I think genie out of the bottle is, is, is the right way to say it. We're, we're never going to get this bag of cats or this, this herd of cats back into the bag, uh, for goodness sakes. <clears throat> this is really managing the transition of a massive tens of billions of dollar industry that has historically been operating in the black market over to a highly regulated market. And by the way, the single most important outcome for that has to be the safety of the product. It has to be about product safety. The idea that cartels are using fertilizers that are known carcinogens to consumers for products that are going to be inhaled or otherwise ingested into you know, a human ecosystem um, is absurd in this era, particularly when all of the tools and technology exist to support the delivery of a safe supply chain for a product like this. So look, I, I mean, from my desk, particularly as a Sand Hill Road professional entrepreneur from Silicon Valley, one of the most exciting opportunities is the application of technology to driving safer products into the hands of consumers and absolutely blocking the, the existing black market from continuing to participate. And oh, by the way, I think the, the, the person from MJ Freeway you know, sort of made the observation that there are hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes now flowing into the coffers of states that are participating. It's only a matter of time for that also to be part of right. the federal uh, uh, regime. And, and we, we all have to work at accelerating that moment. So, so let's talk about tax dollars, Evan. Let's talk about you know, a world and a practice that uh, is probably, uh, of all the, the, the subsectors and the areas of concentration in cannabis, it's probably uh, one of the sectors that's probably least traveled. Um, and I'd like to hear your perspective on just how you're tackling that for your clients. Yeah, I mean, clearly the industry is moving at a pretty fast pace as compared to what the regulators would, would probably like to see it. Uh, the, the tax consequence of that is both good and bad. I mean, the, the federal government does collect their taxes. They, they're not averse to that despite the scheduling. Um, and that's why we, we deal with Section 280E of, of the tax code. Um, that's a, a federal uh, distinction. Uh, states do not have that. And, and really what we're talking about overall, you know, in addition to product safety and, and, you know, public health, there's also public safety concern with cash handling and cash management and how these crops are managed from a security perspective, um, physically, and then also uh, digitally, if we think about cybersecurity and privacy of, of patient rights. But specifically to the tax question, the real challenge is not what we can do with the tax revenues. I think that's pretty clear and, and we can understand and model for that. I think the biggest challenge is what companies can't do right now because of the undue burden of uh, IRC 280E, and that is you can't really project what your business can do. You're taking um, undue risk to either reserve for um, thank you uh, any tax liabilities or you're potentially you know, trying to find ways to get around it. And I think we'd be in a better position to support entrepreneurship as this country is really built on and transparency if we can address the tax code and we can provide for some better forecasting. And then from an investor standpoint, it's really hard to model when you don't know what ultimately that tax base will be and where the future growth will come from. And that's really what's driving a lot of the capital needs for companies. that They're not operating off their own capital because they can't. They have to reserve for that or, or actually pay taxes whereas investors have the opportunity now to take advantage of that, but they need to be very diligent in understanding our operators really thinking through their tax consequences, both at a state level, at a federal level, and potentially internationally. So th there's a lot of good that can be done. There's, there's a lot of um, sort of dampening of that right now, and, and hopefully here today and, and over the next couple of weeks, we can see some of these uh, bills move forward. That well, the, that. the pathway does, you know, we, we, we see these issues lining up, and obviously the right dialogue is taking place, which was not in existence 12 months ago, let alone two years ago. So, so Cody, um, you know, Evan talked a little bit about as an investor how one is able or not to forecast, and ultimately your, you know, your responsibility is that to your investors as a fiduciary and, and making investments. And as someone that's, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time in my career investing in emerging markets. This is a new asset class. It's got all of the trimmings of, of how, uh, I lived in Russia uh, in the mid-90s, uh, how capital markets slowly and, you know, began to build a path, um, new asset class, uh, investors that are not your traditional investors. Um, investments that are not your traditional investments. So, so talk about how 
you guys have navigated this. And is there an investment ethos or a, an approach that, that you think is particular to what you do at Cresco? Sure. So I always think it's a bit comical when um, you see people talk about making money in cannabis like it is falling from the sky, right? Mm -hmm. they, they literally see green in every way possible, whether it's a plant fiber uh, or a Benjamin. And, and the part that I find most intriguing about that is this business is one of the most complex. I mean, if you actually really want to go out and, and make money, I would say, like, don't do it in cannabis because it's a hard business. We're talking about massive regulation, inability to have banking, no loans, no leverage, you know, a lot of bad actors historically, potentially. Um, and, and so first, I think you have to acknowledge that this industry, if you're going to come into it as an entrepreneur, is incredibly difficult. And, you know, these gentlemen can speak to that, having run businesses they're in. So the most important thing as an investor, I think, first is part of our team is operators. And what we mean by operators are people that have built businesses, and particularly cannabis businesses. And the reason why that is so important is because I come from a side that, you know, I have built a business too, but not a giant one. Uh, I come from more quantitative, so, you know, the, the Wall Street side of the business. And what I worry about for investors in the space are those who have only ever come from the ivory towers and they're sitting in New York on the top floor. This industry, it's in the soil. Like, you got to get down low. And that's why you have to have operators on your team who have actually run cannabis businesses and who have also run other businesses in order to see the complexity they're in. Um, you know, not only do you have a physical product, which is never fun to do, really, and inventory issues, um, but on top of that, you really have to deal with things like complete tax uncertainty, banking uncertainty. Um, so I think from an investor standpoint, the biggest thing for me is you got to have operators and you certainly have to have financial professionals and marry the two. Tim alluded to people who are coming in kind of late in the stage and um, and and see green as well uh, and are from a purely financial standpoint, I worry about. Uh, the due diligence yep. in this industry is hugely differentiated. So, you know, I don't know what everybody does in the audience, but as an investor, it's massive due diligence up front. It's massive background checks. And it's understanding, do these humans really have what it takes to go through this very difficult grind that is cannabis? Yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately, if you're valuing any company, um, corporate governance risks, um, if, whether it's a mechanical equity valuation process or an input, and, and there's, there's, there's a science to that, and there's an art to that. I mean, ultimately, uh, you have to look management in the eye. You have to understand their business model. You have to understand alignment. Uh, the cannabis industry has had some significant issues in its early days because of alignment as it relates to the capital structure of these companies. Oh, boy, that's what we're here to talk about um, and why this has created issues for everybody else, um, even the companies themselves. And so as we drill down, let's, let's get into some of the issues from the front line. Everyone's got a perspective on safety issues. You brought this up, Ed, so I want to hear about this. Um, because every one of you deals with the safety issues your clients or your employees face. So, Ed, lead us off on that. Uh, I want to get everybody's perspective on, on how um, you know, everyone is a steward not only of capital but of, of other people's livelihoods. Look, I can't think of a single industry in the United States that exposes its employees to the criminal risk of being hijacked because they're carrying massive amounts of currency. It's crazy. I'm, I'm again, you know, the, the last business that I built was an online education business backed by a Sand Hill Road venture firm. If you'd asked me five years ago if I would be the CEO of a company that had multiple cash counting machines that were and <laughs> yeah. every day as the distribution trucks go out to retail, deliver product, and bring back bags in the form of tens of thousands of dollars of currency, the answer would have been, don't be ridiculous. Why would anybody do such a thing? And in cannabis, we're forced to. So I'd like to simply take this opportunity to encourage everybody in this administration, every legislature, to pause in the back and forth around the politics, and let's put American citizens first. This is a hyper-growth industry creating hundreds of thousands of jobs. Why can't we make them safe? Why would, of the hundreds of employees on the team at Dianamed, on a regular basis be exposed to criminal elements who know? that they're carting tens of thousands of dollars of currency at any given moment back and forth as they do their work distributing millions of individual pieces of cannabis throughout 
California, Oregon, Nevada, Colorado, and, and on and on. That, that this has to stop. It has to stop now. And, and as an operator, um, I actually think I'm a customer of Nick's, and I'm also a customer of, of uh, uh, Evan over here. Maybe someday we'll be a, 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 an invested party from, uh, from Cresco. Uh, I just got a call. Actually, Nancy Pelosi, the, this room is is bugged. She heard all of this, uh, and she's heading down. So That's great. We'll be right with Come you. Come on down, Nancy. This is something we can all work together on. Everybody can agree that any American employee doing their job should be safe. And the overhead and tax, the, the, the unexpressed expenses in these businesses yeah associated with compliance, associated with the crazy banking well, regime that we live in. Yeah, there's a cost to everything. So, um, Nick, what's your biggest safety issue? As a CEO, um, Ed is truly talking about the worker. Um, what, um, as you look at uh, a company that's also uh, working with the biggest companies in the sector, you yourself are a product creator. Um, what? Talk about safety as a, as a byproduct of uh, this dysfunctional legislative environment. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it goes along with what Ed was saying. I mean, the, the employees are, are essentially driving around with this cash. We have customers that pay by cash, not because they don't have banking, but they don't want to put all of their cash into the bank account for fear that it'll get shut down. Uh, we, we were looking to transact with a, a company we were acquiring, and we said, well, what do you do to manage your cash? They said, well, we just keep it to $2,500 a day in deposits so that we don't create any uh, red flags with the bank. <laughs> well, that's great when you're, you know, when you're small, but we're, we're collecting over $250,000 a day yeah. in cash. And when we went to, originally when we went to our banks, B of A, Wells, and asked for vault services so that they could bring armored trucks to pick up this cash, right, so we didn't have to send somebody to the bank with seventy dollars or $80,000, they shut our account down, right? That that that's a big that's a big uh, compliance risk. They said, right? And so they just shut down the account. Now we finally have found a major bank that will take us, and will do the service, but that doesn't help us in getting the cash from our customers' facility back to our headquarters. And we're getting uh, Garda trucks picking up cash every day from our facility, but that that piece where they have to drive it back, we have delivery drivers on the road, dropping off packaging, dropping off vape vape hardware empty, um, so nothing with cannabis in it, but everybody knows when they walk out of those operations, what they're they may have 10,000 or 20,000. We've actually put some thresholds in place where we actually have to contract outside companies because we don't want to put the employees at that risk, um, but you have a lot of issues with chain of custody as well, and so it's it's difficult, and there's a, there's a simple fix. I think we do all agree, uh, both parties, that uh, this cash should be able to be put into the banking institution. Yeah, we just need to get something passed to allow that. We're, we're certainly, uh, obviously, diving straight into the States Act issue. But Evan, you 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 kind of look like the Godfather, but you certainly act in a consigliere <laughs> type of a role <laughs> to your clients. I mean, at the end of the day, you are advising them where they should, you know, be pushing the system. And it's really not about a duplicitous method or motive. It's it's truly about um, what you've seen as being the status quo in terms of, or, or precedent, where there have been regulatory um, investigations, uh, uh, you know, something more aggressive from the regulators, uh, from the tax folks. So just talk about how you've, how you balance that, because at the end of the day, your clients have to take what you've guided them, especially on tax approach, and, and, and go to work. And, and frankly, they'd probably rather you be more aggressive than less at times, and that, that's probably a big issue for your business. Yeah, you know, none of this that we're dealing with is new. There are a lot of regulated industries. We serve a lot of regulated industries. Uh, we have a very large tribal and gaming practice, so we talk about cash intensity. That's uh, a high velocity of cash and, and significant volumes that you also have to manage in a similar way that the cannabis industry does. Um, you look about transporting product and, and kind of high-value product. The pharmaceutical industry deals with that every day. So what we look to do in um, providing guidance to our cannabis clients is that we take best practices from all of the industries that we currently support, and we bring them into the cannabis space. And it's really a broad approach that we take. It's not just tax compliance. It's it really is starting at the top. It's understanding their governance structure and helping them understand how best to structure that for their operation, also for the industry. Um, same thing with risk management, taking the right approach to that, and ultimately compliance, and certainly tax compliance is part of that. And 
and how to navigate what you should set aside within that structure um, to the extent there is an IRS audit and how do you create the trail of information to support the decisions that you're making yeah. when they come back to say, well, why were you classifying this expense one way versus another? So it's really just about the process, the framework, and the understanding of the paper trail that auditors always like to see. Uh, eventually, it won't be a paper trail. Um, is, so is, is that enough right now? Because the sense is that um, there, there haven't been, at least in the publicly traded and or the, uh, the largest cannabis companies, uh, there, there really haven't, it seems, been any, any cases where tax uh, audits have been headlines. Um, and so it, it, we would all advocate, I think everyone out there at, would advocate, you know, this is an industry that is, is trying to be more than compliant. So is the paper trail truly, hey, look, our intent was this, and based upon this, logic says this, and we therefore did this? You know, regulators like to negotiate. They like to leave things fairly broad and how they define what the regulation is, and it's because there is some interpretation. So in certain situations, yeah, that is enough, as long as you have the right intent, the right explanation, and it supports the conclusions that you've made. Um, typically, it's, it's a reasonable conversation and negotiation. Um, sometimes when you just don't have the basis for it, then that's when it goes a little bit more sideways and you try and recreate the intent or the process or whatever it is that you were taking as yeah. an approach. There, there certainly have been some other headline risk that, that we've seen. Um, a large public company recently took a very significant write down on their, on their valuation um, for, for many reasons, but we're not just going to see it from a tax standpoint. We're going to see it from a, a broad uh, lens of really market safety, and I would say that's what we really provide is uh, from what, what now is a, a retail market on the you know Canadian public market side to what an institutional market is going to look like when we have institutional right. investors, and and providing that guidance, providing that information transparency is what uh, you know we try and help to support, and and you really have to look at that fairly broadly. Yeah, so so Cody, I, I would I would argue that the earliest investors and the most sophisticated investors in this industry. Um, really have been risk managers and have been risk managers from uh, the balance sheet perspective. You have to assess um, Evan's you know, guidance um, and you have to assess whether Ed is properly following that and, and allocate dollars for investors um, who, you know, safety for, for them is, is you doing the right, uh, having the right approach. And, it, and there's, there's really, there's, there's, not, there's not a textbook in, in your MBA program on this. So, so talk about the safety of your portfolio and, and how I could look at it right now and, and you, you could tell me, um, you, probably wouldn't, you probably wouldn't allege it's bulletproof, but, but you would allege also a, a process, kind of what Evan is talking about, um, that at least there was a methodology that you went through to determine how safe or not your investments were. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the things that I think is most important as an investor at this stage is um, is we don't look at this business. We call our, our fund a private equity fund, which typically means you're a little bit you invest a little bit later stage in companies. And to be frank, we invest you know in earlier stage companies all the way through to later stage companies because the industry has been evolving so quickly, and it's it's. Um, if you have one in a way that you invest in this industry, that actually doesn't translate very well continuously as we've seen this industry kind of evolve at a rate I don't think we've ever seen in any sector before. Um, so when I say private equity, what's important about that is as an, a private equity investor, you have to become so intimate with this company um, that you know you you lose a little bit of, of your sight from Excel spreadsheets and on-site visits. And so... Um, as an investor, what we do that I think is different is we apply what would be really, really diligent private equity practices to even early stage companies. So if you're on Sand Hill Road and investing as a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, you're like, yeah, I get YouTube. I could see this idea where there's going to be a video and everyone's going to watch it. And okay, and so the term sheet looks exactly the same and you hand over the check based on this idea and there's not an audit and there's not an on-site visit and you're not doing background checks on every single employee and, and founder of the company and you don't have like a very detailed breakdown of their capitalization table and you're not making sure they don't have money from outside interests or outside the US that might not be 
great. Um, and you're, you're kind of looking overall about who are their suppliers. If they work with Kushko, I feel pretty good, but are they working with packagers or labelers that are doing something that might not be FDA compliant, and then we invested in them, and there's something you know big in the headlines. And so the amount of due diligence is astronomical. And the problem, I think, a little bit with that with the, for the industry is it takes longer to fund if you're actually doing a good job as an investor because you have to dive in. And you know these companies, when they're so early, get overburdened by all of the diligence that people like us have to do on them. Uh, and if they're going to go public, probably a lot earlier than a lot of companies should be going public, that adds this whole another layer of additional diligence. Do you, do you think, Cody, that the industry is doing, that the, the investment industry is, is doing enough uh, on their diligence? And I, I'm not looking for this prop answer, like you guys do everything great and, you know, most people don't do as much and I don't expect you'd give me that answer. I guess what I mean is, um, first of all, we're, we're at the precipice of actually seeing some of the biggest financial institutions in the world investing in the sector. Now, they may wait for the States Act. They may not. Some have not. Obviously, um, some certain, uh, absolutely those investors that, that have what seems like either ERISA money, et cetera, are, to, you know, no can do. Mm -hmm. um, but do you, do you think that the industry is underestimating what's required here? Um, and yeah. or do you think it's actually getting better? Because these are supposedly more sophisticated investors. There are investors in cannabis where private equity, family office, um, and I don't mean to, to disparage that group, but in many cases, again, I, 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 I traveled from Moscow to, to Switzerland in, in 1996 um, with an idea for some uh, mining company out in Vladivostok, and I'd head back to Moscow with a check. Um, so I'm, I'm just trying to understand if it's, if it's getting better or worse. Well, the industry's analysis or due diligence is what worries me as much as I worry about price speculation. So um, if, if anything that I'm concerned about in the industry, it's, you know, my mom or grandma watching somebody on, not CNBC, because that wouldn't happen there, but oh on God. another channel. Sacre bleu. <laughs> yeah. and, and saying, no, this company is going to be this next hot thing, and so I'm going to throw a bunch of savings into something that I don't actually understand with the idea that the price is going to go up. And, you know, we humans... We just don't remember that history doesn't always repeat, but it rhymes, as is alleged Mark Twain said it. But, and, and so we keep doing these cycles that, that scare me in, in this industry and any other, which is um, buy into things out of greed as opposed to out of understanding. And so that's what scares me the most is public stocks for you know some companies and especially maybe penny or OTC stocks um, and yeah. and. Retail investors not really understanding what they're doing. That's why we invest private, because on the public side, there are some really incredible public companies, and then there, there are some public companies that I think may be overvalued. So, yeah, sure. Two things on the investor side. You know, you, you have somewhat of a risk conflict, because you are risk managers, but you, you have to take risk because you're looking for capital appreciation. So you're, you're pushing companies to take technically as much risk as they can bear, in order to drive value and our invest our investors exerting undue pressure um, because let's face it uh, investors that we all can go call up the CEO of the company that we have money with and say hey look I don't really think you're you should go for that market right now yeah so the the, the clearest pathway to that answer is there are investors who require upon funding companies to go public within a certain period of time I think that is an absurd obligation on behalf of a company to be public when they should not ever be public, uh, or in a long period of time to be public. Although maybe Uber should have listened to that um, <laughs> a long time ago. So. A whole other conundrum there. But I think that's also interesting. And, and you know, to your point about more sophisticated, smarter investors, you know, yes, on average, that's true. But not everyone that has capital is a smart or sophisticated investor. So what we're seeing now is a, a better infrastructure for uh, advisors, people that have been, you know, in, in sort of the, the, the dirt of it, figuring out the industry for some time, now providing guidance and feedback to investors and helping them manage their portfolio allocation, taking risk where they should, avoiding risk where they shouldn't, uh, or, or where they should as well. And, and I think that dynamic is what's interesting in the landscape where we didn't have that um, before. But yeah, we have a lot of people that are entering now that are just swinging for the fences because why not? And that creates risk for the industry broadly. Right. Um, so let's let's dive right into kind of the golden road to ultimate devotion. That's a reference for a, a certain band. But Nick, I want to talk to you about the States Act. This is, as you see it and as you think it should be written, um, 
Because right now, this is supposed to be everything to everybody. We don't really, obviously, how do we know what the components of this are going to look like? Um, at its core, it should be rooted in states' rights. Um, but what does it mean to you? Yeah, so I, I think this is a good opportunity to talk about some of the dynamics that we've kind of hinted at, right, um, and that maybe not everyone here is aware. So uh, what's, what's really interesting right now in the capital market side of this industry is this dynamic where companies are going public at a very young age, and there's a reason behind that. So the, the reason is that there's not uh, any firms on Sand Hill Road <clears throat> that will stroke a check to cannabis businesses. So if you're a private technology company like Uber, you're pretty much you know walking into all those doors and you're getting offers and counter offers and you're fundraising in a, you know two days right. or a week, right? If you're cannabis, there's uh, much fewer firms that you can go to, and uh, it's essentially much harder to raise capital when. We were looking to raise capital back in 2014. There was virtually no firms, right? And that led us to go public at a very young age. We were doing about $5 million in annual sales, whereas we'll do about 150 this year. So we've been able to grow into the public company, but at the time, we had really had no business going public. And you're seeing these companies um, that you know, need to raise capital to grow, and the only way to access that is, is in the public markets. Um, but, but the interesting twist is it's not in the U.S. markets. So there's a bunch of companies that are listed, uh, that are doing business in the U.S. that are all listed on a securities exchange in Canada called the Canadian Securities Exchange. Uh, you've probably never heard of it uh, if you're not in the <laughs> cannabis industry, um, but it's essentially a very small exchange um, that uh, became cannabis friendly and everybody gravitated to it. Um, now, what's interesting is the companies that actually do business in Canada and other places in the globe, companies like Canopy Growth, Aurora, Kronos, that don't do any business in the U.S., they're actually the only ones allowed to list on the major U.S. exchanges. So you see those companies being listed on NASDAQ and NYSE. So essentially, companies that operate and employ people here in the U.S. are unable to take advantage of the capital markets in the U.S. And companies that don't do business in the U.S. whatsoever are coming to the U.S. and they're getting all of the capital and bringing all the investment into their companies to then take their operations, employ people outside of our country. So, And by the way, I mean, yeah. do you really believe that these Canadian LPs are not investing in the U.S. right now? No, they are. They're figuring out loopholes. So, yeah. again, so we're, we're limiting uh, U.S. companies, forcing them north of the border to inferior stock markets, with all due respect, um, and, and which, by the way, hinders your valuation, right, Nick? In other words, um, you're better off as a private company valuation-wise than going to sit on the CSE in an illiquid structure um, where corporate governance risks historically have not been, let's just let's put it this way, the, the regimen around the listing standards. I'm about to, to launch an ETF, and I heard the, from the legal opinion from our attorneys um, for the sector is, is that nobody on CSE is going to be in your portfolio if you want this to be a U.S. 40 Act traded product. So, um, so yeah. yeah I mean, just just think about the the extra work that's required for these companies to list publicly, just because out of necessity, and not even be able to do it in a liquid exchange where they're able to access real institutional U.S. capital. You know, the, the backbone of our of our capitalism here. Um, so it's it's a it's a terrible dynamic that needs to get fixed. And that was a long way of saying my hope is the States Act will fix it. Right. right. And so that's that's where I think a lot of the public company. Uh, CEOs and executives are looking to get out of this act is yeah. basically be able to open up the capital markets so that we can act at, like any other regular company, a, a company like us that's growing 250% a year, that last quarter we did 35 million in sales, isn't listed on NASDAQ or NYSE, right. but we have to stay on the OTC exchange. It makes no sense. And so we'd like to fix that first and foremost. And then of course, you know, just giving the protection to these businesses that are operating compliantly and taking away the fear of any sort of legal crackdown uh, or criminal charges, that's another thing that will happen, which is, which is right. long overdue. Well, and this is a land grab. So giving any company from another country, uh, I, I know this has been discussed in the other panel, and, and I, I think from a, from a technology perspective and from, you know, an agricultural perspective, but, but the reality is in a land grab, if you give another company an opportunity to get a huge advantage right now, I mean, this has been the whole reason why Tesla uh, has been given this valuation. So, um, so for Nick, States Act means capital markets. Ed, for, for you, what does States Act mean for your business? 
Yeah, it, look, it starts with safety for the employees. And after you get past that, it's everything that you said, Nick. It, it simply doesn't make sense that American businesses that are employing American citizens in one of the most explosive growth economic opportunities of our era, of the last 50 to 75 years, are essentially fighting with one hand tied behind their back. When, when will it be possible for Goldman, Morgan Stanley, and Citigroup to show up in my office both working through the, the, the process for tapping the most efficient capital markets on the globe for growth capital. This industry is not going to transition from tens of billions of dollars in the black market to tens of billions of dollars in the regulated market without billions of dollars of working capital and inventory financing. I mean, this is just sort of basic 101. So everything he said is dead on. Mm -hmm. And we have to put the safety of our employees, of our neighbors, of our friends, and our citizens uh, first. Evan, talk about the cost of capital and talk about, uh, you know, really, uh, you, your business will always have a, a important role. But there's no question you've been helping people um, navigate some of this dysfunction. Um, talk about State Track from the perspective of, uh, of banking, uh, of cost of capital, and, and ultimately uh, how complicated it will be or not suddenly. Yeah, so I, I think at a very fundamental level, it just it offers businesses the ability to operate in a very traditional sense. And, and what I mean by that is, Right now, there's no real pathway for inventory financing or factoring or equipment financing, depending on what side of the space you're in, although that is changing now. So you've had uh, fairly usurious uh, lending rates uh, between 20 and 40% for some operators, whereas traditionally, you would see something between 6 to 15%, depending on risk. And, and that Stop is... It. Inventory financing, something you address you, every day. So Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> just to put in perspective, uh, our company has, uh, when you include prepaid inventories, close to $50 million of inventory and prepaid inventory sitting. And this is, you know, regular packaging, plastic vials, traditional kind of stuff that has a resale market. And we also have about $13 million of receivables um, that, that people owe us. And typically you can lend against both of those. Uh, to the tune of, you know, 60, 70%. Well, we're accessing out of that 63 million, a total, a grand total of eight uh, from a private lender where we end up paying all in about 18 to 19% interest yeah. for that, for that. Ouch, day. ouch. So, uh, Evan, continue. Very yeah. Efficient, yeah. Um, and, and costly for everyone. Thank you, Nick. I'm sorry that that's what you're going through. Yeah, I mean, so that, that's what the challenge is, and hopefully the States Act actually addresses that so we can get some framework for banking services, very basic banking services at rates that are reasonable. Um, you know, the other, the other bigger thing is, <clears throat> excuse me, is really hopefully we can open up some interstate commerce. I think we're seeing markets that should not have certain aspects of the industry um, artificially creating infrastructure, mm -hmm. um, also very capital inefficient. And I think that's going to be an undue burden on the industry. Well, like what? What would what, what be an example of that infrastructure? Uh, same thing we talked about in Canada in an earlier panel, creating you know millions of square foot of indoor grows when yep. you can grow significant volumes of high-quality cannabis in markets like California or Oregon and Get them, uh, get them where they need to go. Distribute that where it needs to go for whatever the purpose is. And the reality is that is happening now. And, you know, whether it's not a fact-based analysis, but 80% of so of that product is uh, distributed throughout the U.S. And why not capture that in a regulated legal market, um, but also do so in a way that, that enhances the, the um, transparency and the product safety and the tax revenue <laughs> overall. And I think, you know, the States Act will allow us to do that where states allow for it and, and give them the rights to make those decisions like they do in other industries, gaming, alcohol, whatever else it is, and we'll navigate that myriad regulatory framework like we do today mm -hmm. anyway uh, in just a more efficient way and, and provide capital sources to companies that are trying to scale properly and efficiently and, and provide value to their employees and, and other stakeholders, and they can't do that right now. Cody, w when the States Act is announced, let's say it's in some form of what these gentlemen want. What's that mean to the value of your portfolio? Um, is that 
is, is that a game changer from, from a valuation perspective for these companies? Or is that already in the price because we markets are efficient, whether they're private or public? Um, yeah, I think you're going to find different responses to this, depending on who you speak to. My opinion is it's an absolute game changer, to use your terms. I mean, if for no other reason than um, right now they touched a little bit on it, but this is an institutional capital-starved industry, right? And so mm -hmm. there are there's something called a vice clause that a lot of institutions have that basically mean that they can't Im invest in anything that's, that's federally illegal. And so what that means is, you know, pensions, let's say, who for the average American is where we derive a lot of our you know, 401ks, et cetera, uh, and, and our retirement funds, they cannot invest in this industry. So, so one, like the average American is losing out because they can't invest in these companies, which are massively uh, exploding, and they typically would through a CalPERS, CalSTRS, or some of these really big pensions out there. And so once those, you know, institutions can invest in cannabis, uh, I would assume that our portfolio companies are going to get started uh, going to start to be gobbled up, not only in the private markets through private funding and capital markets, uh, but then also from the Coca-Colas, Constellation Brands, et cetera, being able to outright purchase plant-touching companies in the U.S. So I would imagine that there's going to be quite an expansion and valuation that comes from, from the States Act moving through. Hey, Tim, can I just add one thing? And, and, and look, it, it, sometimes um, uh, these discussions come off in a way that seem to demonize the Canadian capital markets. And I just want to hit pause for a second and say, we owe these people a debt of gratitude for their courage, for their leadership, Prime Minister Trudeau, the, the thoughtful bankers at Canaccord and, and Cormark that literally drove the capital development for the creation of a new industry. Uh, I, as an entrepreneur, who by the way is used to dealing with institutional investors, uh, 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 you know, can't wait to get to that point in time. And at the same time, the, the Canadians pioneered this space. We owe them a debt of gratitude and the fact that our businesses are capital starved or we're dealing with capital costs that are inappropriate, this is a self-inflicted wound. And, and, and it can be fixed right upstairs by the, by the people that we elect every two to four years to, to do this work. Well, I, and I think, so appreciate that because sometimes I do feel, um, in fact, I have to do this sometimes on TV where, you know, like Tilray is a bad guy because Tilray, um, most successfully navigated the capital markets like any company would want to. I mean, it, it, you know, should, it, should a company be, be skewered for having a, a earnings multiple that truly makes no sense? Well, I mean, you know, they're a company that, that let's be clear, I mean, they, they've set up JVs or partnerships with some of the biggest multinationals in the world. Um, and, and for that, we're given an endorsement um, of that. They were the first US IPO. Um, of any cannabis company. So, I mean, that alone took them to where they needed to go. So I think, I think the point is well taken, Ed, and I think um, ultimately uh, it, this gets down to, I mean, if you think about uh, we're sitting in the U.S. Capitol building, this is really about American interests. It's not about attacking other countries. It's, it's, about, it's about putting U.S. companies in a place where they can win. Um, and, and I guess, so, you know, let's, let's segue into, you know, leaving a couple minutes for questions. Um, but, you know, I, I think everyone, why don't we get a final point um, in terms of what, you know, the capital markets and banking dynamic uh, either wish list is. I think we've kind of talked about that, Nick. Um, but, but how would you like to, 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 to leave us in terms of either, you know, how your business will change um, and, and what that means to you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my, my final point, and, and you just mentioned it, right, this is really, you know, we're not, we're not bashing anyone else. We're just saying, hey, let's, let's create the best system here in the U.S. so that these businesses can thrive and our economy can thrive. And when you think about the cannabis industry, obviously employing a ton of people, right, but dollar for dollar, the cannabis industry benefits the U.S. more than any other industry. And the reason why is because 100% of the cannabis sold in the U.S. is also produced in the U.S. 100% of the employees are U.S. citizens. In fact, it's required at a state level as well that sometimes the owners be uh, residents of a certain state, that the employees be uh, residents of that state as well. So, you know, you're not importing vodka from Russia or, you know, avocados from Mexico here. Everything is generated 
produced and sold right here in the US of A. So we're talking about generating more multiples on these dollars than any other industry, and we're not efficiently doing it because we're uh, lacking in these certain areas. And so let's fix it, and then let's see how big this can really be. Ed. Yeah, I, I, uh, you've, you've heard me say it over and over. The safety of employees and the cash currency thing is a non-starter. That's got to stop. It's got to stop now. And efficient capital, efficient growth capital means more jobs, more satisfied consumers, safer products, and, uh, and, a, and an accelerated transition from the really toxic black market to a highly regulated, safe uh, consumer packaged goods uh, industry. Really quick, are, are you ready for a States Act if it happened tomorrow? At, is yeah, your company ready? It's, that's a great question. We actually began investing in the capacity to list on the New York's, uh, the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. Uh, and, and put on board a, an executive at the cost of an executive to essentially run a dual track process so that when the bell goes off, we're ready to go. Got it. Yeah. Evan. Yeah, so I, I think the, the last point that I would want to make is, um, you know, if we think about the intent of any policies that we're drafting and ultimately implementing and imposing, if we just make sure we're focusing on the positive impact of all stakeholders, starting with patients first, caregivers, community members, operators, investors, I think if we have that intent, um, acts like the States Act and Safe Banking Act and others um, hopefully uh, can provide that positive impact that we're all looking for. So I, I would just say, like, I always remember that all capital costs and all costs in general are always passed to the consumer. So, you know, we're here talking about it from a business perspective, but what this means at the end of the day is that all consumers, so your mom who has cancer or, you know, your dad is eventually paying more if they're accessing any part of this industry because of the way the capital structure is set up right now. So, um, I think it, to your point, it is really important that we look at all of the stakeholders, but I think the consumers are number one uh, in all of this. Um, and, the, and the other point is everybody that I've met in this industry has some sort of origin story to cannabis, right? Like I'm sure all of you do in this room. That's why you're sitting here. And so, you know, my my gentleman is an active duty special forces for the military. And we're, we reside in Texas. Um, and there's no access for many of his friends who have come back without arms and legs uh, from, from wars to cannabis if they have PTSD, right? And so I, I go back again and again to if we make this about the individual faces who are affected by this industry, that is what I think changes minds, um, not just talking about dollars and cents. Thank you, Cody. So um, to quickly sum this up, I think, you know, one, Genie's out of the bottle. This isn't about cannabis or not cannabis. Cannabis was here, it's here, it's gonna be here. Um, from a safety perspective, all the way through the production chain into uh, the accounting books, um, these companies are dealing with this issue in a way that really they're, they're stewards of their employees and of, of capital. Um, you know, from a cost of capital perspective, these businesses are so much more inefficient as a function of, of the current capital markets dynamic. It's not just cost of capital, it's the protections, it's the infrastructure, it's all this stuff that has to go on with all respect to the, the fees that Evan collects on that. I'm just kidding. Um, no, I mean, I think there's, it's, it's created actually some very thoughtful approaches to, to how we do this. Um, and, and I think, you know, finally, it's just a question of that these are, these are companies that are, 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 are being held back and shackled, and these are investment groups that are ultimately investing in companies that are being held back. So um, with that, I, I know we don't have a lot of time, but I, I'd love to take some questions if there are any. And if not, we will keep moving. Thank you, sir. Tax revenue is clearly an incentive for states and the federal government to legalize. But one of the bills being sponsored by Congressman Blumenauer would impose a 25% tax on top of the state and local taxes, which right. already have an effective rate of 40%. Um, how would you, I mean, that seems to me would sustain black markets, and if so, how do you think legal cannabis should be taxed? Great question, because um, right now, the black market is being aided and abetted yeah. by taxation. Who, who wants to tackle this? Well, I think, I think just one comment on that. I mean, it's not, you know, don't expect the black market to go away overnight, um, but if you look at the alcohol industry, there's no, there's no black market, and I'm, I'm sure that the cost of making your own moonshine is a lot less than buying a bottle of Grey Goose, right? But the reason is, is it's taken time. People know that the product safety is there. They identify with the brands and the quality that, that those stand for. 
that's going to take years and years and years and a lot of marketing dollars before the cannabis industry can get there. So I think my personal opinion is, yeah, if we want to help that. Let's try to lower the taxes, uh, especially in the interim, knowing that we can make it up on the back end once you start to choke out this black market. I think 25% is... It sounds like supply side economics, yeah. which you know, we can have been debated in this room, I'm sure. Um, and, and then, and then getting, you know, if you, if you're actually able to get these standards out there and, and people are starting to hear them, the public becomes aware that there's a clear difference between something you're consuming in the black market and something you're consuming in the legal sure. market, let the consumer make those decisions and they will pay a premium. I don't know if they'll pay that big of a premium, 25% plus state and local, but there's a middle ground there and we just need to find it. We want regulation, sir. Yeah, thanks. So, um, Capital access is definitely a problem for the cannabis business, and it is even a worse problem for my community, uh, particularly when you're trying to acquire assets of some size and you want to uh, pursue a strategy of growing that business, uh, buying existing businesses. So uh, I'm an entrepreneur and been an entrepreneur for about uh, all my life uh, and have been looking at the cannabis business for the last two or three years trying to find a place of entry and have decided that the ancillary side is, is where I'd like to, uh, to go. Uh, and the strategy I want to pursue is to, uh, in the area that I've decided to pursue, is to find existing companies and roll them up into a, a larger venture. Having problems uh, finding the capital to, to do that, so I've come up with this idea. And I guess, Cody, Evan, you may be the, the most appropriate two to, to I was getting ready to direct it right there. Right. <laughs> uh, so the idea I have is to marry uh, the industry's social themes with a t piece of tax legislation that is the result of the JOBS Act, namely the Opportunity Zone deal. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to form a Opportunity uh, Investment Fund uh, that would be used to uh, both acquire businesses and also provide in the communities uh, training and jobs in those communities. Is there any feasibility, are you aware of any such activity and, and uh, maybe you could give us some advice as to how I should marry the Opportunity Investment Fund with an acquisition strategy to, uh, to go forward. Well, I mean, um, I think uh, it has been done. You can look up Spectrum, you can look at Green Zone. There are others doing this in a, in a fund structure. Um, and I think, you know, mimicry is the best form of flattery. So if I was to give you advice, which I, you know, I don't do an investing, but um, I would I would say go and look at what these others are doing and then apply it to your local zone. I, th I think the only differentiator there would be that, you know, you want to make sure that you're pretty tied into the local community regulators within and realize that just because it's an opportunity, you know, just because you're marrying two themes that are hyper growth themes doesn't equate to success always. So I've seen a lot of these funds very sexy cannabis and opportunity zone, um, but it, uh, execution, not so great. Yeah, the only thing I'll add to that, because that, that is true, it is happening there. There are um, ways of looking to kind of take the good from what's already out there. And to your point, the, the biggest flaw in what we've seen is the lack of infrastructure, training, support, capital only gets you so far. If you don't efficiently operate and execute, you're not going to get anywhere. And I think the biggest problems with some of the social equity programs and others within the U.S. right now is it lacks infrastructure, it lacks um, the ability to support communities that have been impacted in a sustainable way. And that's something to focus on if you're going to go at it that way. Maybe the only other, th other thing I would add, too, is if cannabis companies right now are willing to be fully sold at small levels, typically means that they're not the best operating-wise. So like, be very careful about what you can buy right now, because if you're going to buy these companies and they are great, perfectly run, incredibly executed companies, they're probably not going to sell to you. So what you, whatever you are going to buy, you're going to have to massage quite a bit and, and work quite hard at turnaround. So I hate to do this, because I know this young man, and he was just on the last panel, and he likes to talk. So we've been given our, Chris, um, give me 30 seconds. I mean, sorry, Mark, give me, give me, give me 30 seconds. Do you have a question? Are you? Real quick, sorry. Uh, uh, it, it appears that the uh, Senator McConnell wants to advance legislation that's going to enable interstate commerce of hemp. Uh, it does not appear that the States Act will facilitate that. Um, and uh, it appears that McConnell would consider, you know, descheduling marijuana. Uh, why are we not talking about descheduling marijuana versus the States Act on this panel? And, and would you accept descheduling of marijuana as a step before the States Act? Well, I, I guess the question is, do, do any of you think that this would be a more advantageous road, maybe a more efficient road? 
um, uh, to getting where you need to go, or is it really about just being able to, to bank and, and operate in the current environment that's the first step for you? Is de is de How important is it? Well, I, I think it's a great point because at the end of the day, if it's descheduled, then you don't have this issue of banking because right now the issue is it's Schedule 1, and so banks don't want to touch it. So I think that is a, a, another route that, that we could certainly go. You know, I think there's somewhat of a conflict of interest uh, with cannabis industry as a whole because, you know, we, we although we complain about all these barriers, right, and this red tape, it also keeps a lot of competition out. And so most people in the industry are looking at, yeah. hey, the States Act, keep it the way it is, but let us have access. Whereas if you deschedule, then you essentially open up the door for everybody and anybody to come in. And so, you know, that's probably why people talk more about the States Act than, than now descheduling, maybe because there's a more clear path as well. Yeah. But if there was a, a clear path to descheduling, it would certainly solve all these problems and, and open up the market, the capital markets. Yeah, this is what we hear all the time. And, and I think descheduling is a case where do, do the pharma plays really want to compete with big pharma? Do, do the, you know, the adult plays really want to compete with, with all the big, you know, tobacco and alcohol or whoever, um, or really down at the consumer level. So um, I'm afraid we really do have to go, and I'm used to going to commercial breaks, and this is a hard out. Um, I'm already into Jim Cramer's show, and he's, he's mad at me. So, um, so thank you very much to the panel. Fantastic job. Thank you, KCSA, for this event today. I want to give a special thanks to Gretchen Gailey, Nick Opich, and McKenna Miller on the KCSA team for all of the hard work that they did in helping to put together KCSA's DC Day. Um, this was a big undertaking for us where we coordinated you know, two dozen speakers, um, access to Capitol Hill. It was the very first time that anybody has ever done a cannabis event physically on the grounds of the Capitol. And I give tremendous credit to Gretchen for doing that and for Nick and, and McKenna for supporting her. Um, so I want to thank you for listening. Um, as always, if you want to chat with us, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle um, on Twitter. It's at the underscore Green Rush. And on Instagram, the handle is at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Um, you can also send us an email to greenrush at KCSA. Um, don't forget to subscribe to your favorite or us. Don't forget to subscribe to us. If you like hearing my voice and hearing me fumfer over shit like this, you can subscribe in your favorite podcatcher. And that, my friend, is one take, Shay. One take.